Hello, listeners, and welcome to Sober Town. This is your host, King13, joining you today on a beautiful Tuesday. I think, no, actually, it's Wednesday. See, I've been a busy, busy, busy girl. But that's a good thing in sobriety, right? We have to keep busy. So I just want to give a shout out now that you are here at Sober Town Podcast. Have a look around after you're done listening to what we're about to present, because Honestly, it's a one-stop sobriety shop and we have worked really hard and everybody volunteers from the I Am Sober community to put this all together for you. And I just want to give a shout out to everybody because they do a fabulous job. And the I Am Sober community actually uh, voted us number two on their poll of podcasts. So we certainly are here to help and we hope you enjoy it. And today... Uh, I was doing a bit of research on this lady who is from the I Am Sober community and I have seen her in Zooms, but I've not had the pleasure of really getting to know her, which I'm about to do today. We're going to talk about her journey and I just do want to give a warm welcome because the word that comes to, to mind people is tenacity and I want you to listen and I want you to really absorb what you're about to hear. And I want to give a big warm welcome to my friend. I'm just so happy to see you, Sober Seedling. Good morning to you and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, no, not- it's, a, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. So I was doing, as I said, some research on you and I want to take you back obviously to the start and then you can take it from there. You, I believe, made your first post on June 23rd, 2021. Mm-hmm. And this was a day zero for you. And I just want to start off by saying Polly was the first person to comment. And then the second was Molly. And I know that you had said to me, and Molly, for the people who don't know, it is 10 seconds at a time and I am sober. And she has been instrumental in her journey as well, but also to Sober Seedling. So just take it from there how this all evolved. Uh, well, I. I feel like, you know, authenticity is something that's really important to me. And especially for people that are coming into this community, I think it's uh, extra important to be honest about the fact that I had an account that existed before that. And um, Mm -hmm. I actually reset a few times before that even, and wasn't, wasn't entirely ready to do the journey. And I, I had actually happened upon the, I am sober app via a good friend who had um, used it as a day counter. And so he didn't even, he had no idea that this community even existed. And I logged on and created an account and was using it as a day counter and just happened upon the community section and started to post on it. And I want to say, I I actually probably came into the, so this is in June that the day zero that you're talking about, but I, I probably actually came into the community in May And um, posted a few times and was in a pretty tumultuous relationship at that point in time and um, was feeling a lot of shame around my resets and the number of times I was doing it. So uh, I ended up recreating my Sober Seedling account and um, just to kind of see what would happen. And Polly was the first person to comment and then Molly. And I was using that space to process getting out of an abusive relationship and attempting to remain sober in conjunction. Cause there were a lot of things that led up to that moment. And Molly reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, I know you don't know me, but I would encourage you to go listen to this podcast and listen to mine. And I, and I honestly was so desperate at that point in time, uh, that I, that I, was I do a lot of driving for work and I listened to both of her podcasts and I had never felt so uh, seen as I did in that moment. And I, I, every word of her story felt so familiar to me. And um, I immediately reached out to her via email and asked if I could process some things. And it was like an instant instant connection. And then Polly, um, she connected me with Polly to get involved on some of the, the telegram groups that are here. And like both of those women have just been hugely instrumental in creating a gateway to the, I am sober community, which, uh, has definitely been the game changer. So yeah, that's how I got here. Yeah. And we talk about connection all the time and it's interesting. You came back. Good for you. See, right there and then there was something deep inside you that said, all right, Mm -hmm. let's get back and have another crack. 
Yeah. And so <clears throat> go on, tell us a little bit more. I don't know if you want to talk about a little bit about how you grew up and what your home environment was like and so forth, siblings. Yeah, yeah. I I actually, I spent some time when you had asked me to do this questioning how how is it possible to take a lifetime of experiences and traumas, <laughs> honestly, and um, wrap them up into mm. an, an hour long podcast. And it's, it's, I'm, I am, I'll, I, you can't do it. Right. So um, no, <laughs> no. I, I did think about some of the most instrumental moments though, that kind of got me up to this point. And I, I grew up in rural Northern Michigan in um, small family. So it was my mom, my dad, my brother, and I, my brother's three years younger than me. My dad is an iron worker. He's a retired iron worker. And my mother is a first generation Swiss immigrant. Um, and she, they're both blue collar workers that have demonstrated an incredible amount of work ethic. And um, there was, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of alcoholism in my dad, my dad, um, I used to joke and say to people that he was the worst alcoholic in three counties because we, when I was growing up, a lot of times I would, um, the cops were at our house a lot. Um, there were a lot of DUIs that were involved. Um, and, and my parents, they, they fought an awful lot. And I think it was, it was, it was two people that, that came together that loved each other very much, but clearly had a lot of wounding and did not have the mm. tools necessary to process that appropriately. And I think it's a lot of generational trauma that gets passed down. And um, I think it is important to note that in the course of my childhood, I, I experienced being caught in the crossfire of a lot of that, but never once did I ever feel unloved by my parents. Like my parents have always been incredibly supportive people. I value them and look up to them. And I am really, really, really proud to, to, to have them. So my mom and, and my brother as well, my brother's like one of my best friends. I'm so lucky to have him too. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, but my dad, like my dad had had multiple DUIs and my mother, was really struggling with the effect that that was having on our family, particularly financially, because we were in a tremendous amount of poverty, no matter how much money my dad was making and mm. food stamps, the whole nine yards. And my mom is Swiss. So she's got a lot of pride around people not knowing how poor we were at the time. And that rural community, I'm sure had a lot of opinions about us because they knew the cops were showing up all the time. And, um, my mom, I, I, I want to say that this was probably the way that I see it. The ultimate act of love and just complete surrender on my mom's part was, was seeing my dad's drinking and driving, getting as bad as it was and, and saying, you know, what, I've had enough of this and enough of the mm. way that it affects our family. And I, I have to call the cops on you. So she, she called the cops on him <laughs> and got him pulled over for drunk driving, knowing full well that that was going to affect her. And, um, that set in motion, my dad's sobriety and my father, my father's did 90 AA meetings in 90 days. Reluctantly, it was either that, or he went to jail. So he thought that he could just do the 90 meetings and be all fine. And that ended up being a life-changing experience for him. So he, I would venture to say that that, that series of events was probably the most influential series of events in, in my personal life was watching my dad go from being one way to, to working this recovery program, um, finding God, honestly, he, he is a born again, Christian and, and coming out of it on the other side with our family and our, our family being put back together again. So my parents are still together. They still live in Northern Michigan. Um, it's, it's, it's an amazing success story. And the two of them are the most loving, open, like humble humans ever. I talk to my mom and dad almost daily. I call my brother regularly. So, um, I was, I was pretty fortunate. So that was my, my upbringing really. I think that's just a beautiful story. And you know what? I always think of redemption and isn't that just right there. That just proves listeners that if you work hard enough at it, and again, tenacity to hang in there, there was obviously a lot of love, like you said, and look, we all know the addict voice when we're saying things and we're fighting. It's not us speaking. We're, we're over we're emphasizing everything that's coming out of us and our emotions are, you know, way beyond what they should be. 
And, you know, in sobriety, um, it's interesting because I don't know if I should say this, but, you know, when you start drinking at like an illegal age of 18 and you're not completely mature and I was like, I was like that as a kid and I find myself I'm going through emotional sobriety at 16 months next week. I'm finding I'm like I'm 15, 16 again. You know what I mean? Like mm, with that sort of like my dad was strict and so I would be like, oh, dad, stop controlling me. And, oh, dad, you know, get away from me and, I, you know, just leave me alone. And I find myself doing that to somebody I live with, which is not very nice sometimes. And it just, there was a light bulb moment this morning that, oh, my God, you've grown up emotionally in some aspects of your life. So, again, listeners, you can be, the light bulbs happen all the time, but it's a really good thing. It's awareness. And somewhere along the line, that's what Dad had. Mm-hmm. And the, and they've talked about, I was in a, a different community last night, and they talked about risk, and that's what your mum did. Your mum at that pivotal moment had a lot to lose and took that risk, and how beautiful it turned out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, there's the neighbor's car alarm is going off right now. Yes, see, happened. this is raw edited, <laughs> and I'm, we are definitely not professionals. We are, however, dedicated, honest. And <laughs> We do. We have dog bombs. We have cars, alarms. Don't worry. The other day I was doing a podcast and I had, um, warning, warning, please attention. There's a fire in the building. It goes off all the time. I live in a big tower, 43 floors, and that alarm has been going off constantly. So sorry, listeners, just pause and we'll be back and we are here. So go on. So that was all good. So I know with your posting, and you can talk about this, it's been a lot about your personal relationship that has, well, you tell the listeners what it's done. Um, my, my personal relationship with my last relationship, you mean? Well, yeah, I was just going to say, because that's the one I've mainly read about. And you can talk about others, but I do want you to get to that one too. Yeah. Oh, oh definitely. And, you know, it was, um, it's, it's, it's so interesting what brought me to that one. So yes, I was in a, um, an in- incredibly abusive relationship that actually led me to a domestic violence, uh, su- support organization and shelter. And, um, I had never imagined in a million years that I, I would, would, would have ever really allowed myself to get to that particular point in my life. Right. So, um, you know, I came coming from a, a loving family. I had, I had really like promised myself that I would never, um, I would never allow myself to get into the same situation that I witnessed. And, um, it's, it's interesting because I was actually married for, um, well, together with my ex-husband for close to 10 years and we were married for close to five And, um, that, that relationship that I had with him was, was mostly a really loving one. We were just babies. We got together when Mm -hmm. we were, you know, um, gosh, I, I actually knew when I was in eighth grade that I loved him and, um, the summer in between high school and college, he and I, uh, dated and he, he was like drinker partier. And I was that, you know, conservative Christian straight, a perfectionist student who promised myself that, Oh, I'm never gonna, you know, I'm saving myself for marriage and I'm never gonna drink. And I'm, I'm going to get my straight A's and like very much addicted to perfectionism. Um, but I met him and there was like such a a freedom in the way that he was. And Mm I, I, we dated and, thank God he had a head on his shoulders because I was at this point when I graduated from high school, you know, I'm getting ready to go to this conservative Christian college. And I started kind of drinking with him a little bit in the in-between. And he, uh, (laughs) he was like, no, 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 I see what's happening here. And I think I'm going to destroy your future. So I'm going to break up with you. So he dumped me and it was, it was terrible. I, (laughs) it was absolutely terrible. I'm laughing only because wow, what an insight right there. I'm sorry, you know what I mean? Like, oh, that's just incredible. The go on, sorry. Yeah, no, this and this is a this is an 18-year-old boy, like knows better, right? So I I went off to conservative Christian college, graduated in three and a half years, came home working as a middle school theater teacher. That's what that was my first job. And um got together with him, had a period of really like drinking my face off with him because I I wanted to date him so badly. I was twisting myself into a pretzel to do it and uh, ended up, he told me he was going to move across the country. So I moved all the way to 
Oregon with him. It started in Washington, went to Oregon. Um, and we started building this life together and, um, which is actually where I started working in breweries. So that was in 2008. And, um, he and I had a, had a, had a great relationship. I was never a drinker. I was actually very resentful of his drinking. And, um, the two of us, like we made great partner, great friends, um, just really bad at dealing with relationship stuff. And our marriage, um, started to fall apart while we were out there. And so we, collectively made the decision to move to North Carolina to, to sort of fix things. So in 2014, we got to North Carolina and, um, you know, I, in, in, in our relationship, I was always like sort of the bookish, like quiet person who was really afraid to make a lot of connections with people. And he was this vibrant social being who, um, people were just naturally drawn to. And I, I, um, like I said, he was out partying and I was, I was not, um, in school to be a nurse at this point in time. And I, I moved to North Carolina and the two of us, I kept working towards my nursing degree and our marriage just like continued to disintegrate. And I, I started to blossom and he got quieter and the marriage, um, the marriage ended up, you know, eventually getting to the point where I found out that there was infidelity happening. And that mm -hmm. was in, in 2016. And, um, I absolutely fell the frick apart and, um, I was such a, I mean, you have to like bear in mind that I was 21 when the two of us got together. And for 10 years, he was the only person that I knew, like my only example of, of relationships. I never got that party experience that everybody got. I never got, um, I don't know. Like I was, and I was very fortunate because I, I did experience a lot of love in that relationship. And, but when that happened, my entire identity was completely ripped away from me. And, um, I just wanted to be a wife and a mom and a nurse. I wanted to help people. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, um, I ended up leaving the house that we were in very small town homeless, <laughs> bouncing couches until I eventually found a place to land. And I uh, moved into this house all by myself for the first time. I was 30 years old living by myself for the first time. And I, I felt really disconnected and I started drinking because that's, uh, that's what I, I saw him do. And he was really mature. And I'm like, well, this is clearly what grownups do. And everybody I'm working with is doing this. So I'm going to drink whiskey and read books. Cause that's cool. <laughs> right very Hemingway uh oh <laughs> uh, and very stylish too I might add so stylish if you want to look at it that way when we were all partaking yeah oh anyway, no. you had you, no, yes, so you had a lot of intellect <laughs> yeah yeah so I'm I'm uh I'm reading you know Ralph Waldo Emerson by myself and Thoreau and drinking whiskey at home after work every single night and um and I, which I really do both, I enjoy both of those authors immensely. And I'm simultaneously going through this incredible shift in understanding who I am as a person, whilst also completely falling apart and realizing that I have no idea who I am and I have no clue how to be alone or how to interact with anybody mm. in public or how to talk to men. So I, I started going out to, to the bars and drinking. And I'm mm. like, wow, this is a, a social lubricant. I am more fun this way. My husband always told me that I was too much because I was always so wrapped up in emotions all the time. I wanted to talk about feelings and he, he, that was not something that he was comfortable doing at that point in time. Um, and so I always yeah. felt like I was too much. And, but when I drank, I didn't feel like I was too much. And, um, suddenly I'm the life of the party. I didn't know how to have relations with men without drinking. So I joke and say that for a couple of years, I went on a tram page, <laughs> <laughs> which happens, you know, when you, you go through a divorce and they were all, uh, at what age are we at this tram page? Tram page 30. I'm like, this is like between the age of okay, 30. Okay. So we're still at 30. Okay. That's 30 fine. and 32. This is happening yeah. between the years of 2016 and 2018. You were blossoming, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I, I, meanwhile, this is happening and the, the friendships that I had created with, um, 
with my coworkers who had known me to be this really reserved sort of grounded person, they're watching me just lose my shit. And, um, I, at one point in time, they stopped inviting me to things that they would invite me to as a married couple. And they said that it was because I was too much. And because I, I, you know, some, you, you talk about your feelings all the time. You ask me about my feelings and sometimes I just want to talk about the drapes oh and that yeah. just hurt. It does hurt. Yeah. And so I, I, but the only time again, that I felt like I was really fitting in was when I was drinking. And it's the only, the mm-hmm. men that I was meeting were men that, uh, I, I was meeting in bars and, um, I think at that point, my self-esteem and my self-worth was so low that that's just the only place that I felt comfortable getting it, any mm-hmm. sort of validation because it was easy. And um, in in 2018, I, I ended up getting, um, having this major hip issue mm-hmm. and uh, it, it ended up resulting in me having to get a surgery that, that had me bed bound for six weeks. And, um, during those six weeks living alone, I had to enlist the help of my community because I couldn't even take a shower by myself. And for the first four weeks, my legs were strapped to a bolster and I had to have, um, people stay the night with me that I would have to tap to take me to the bathroom. So it was, it was a very humbling experience. And I couldn't drink during this time. So that, that period of me going through, uh, my hip surgery during that time, I was sober. I started drawing and I realized that, um, I, I, I'm like, wow, I'm in my thirties and I can draw. And I had no idea. So I would give myself the length of a vinyl to draw and was like, you know what, I'm going to try this artist thing. And I was actually pretty good at it. So that's how I discovered that I, I could be an artist. And my best friend would come over and play music with me. He and I wrote a lot of songs during that time. I discovered Buddhist practice at that time, which was life-changing. And, um, you know, it was really like getting my stuff together and, you know, uh, tale as old as time. I came out of this strong, ended up, um, shifting gears from being a, a bar, just a bartender working towards nursing. Um, I was working as a CNA in hospice, which was life-changing as well. And, um, started working as a beer rep, <laughs> which I still do. <laughs> Hold on. You just said hospice and beer rep in like the one sentence. I know. Oh my <laughs> Lordy Lord. Okay. I, I have to ask, please explain. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, I got hired on in a, 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 well, I had worked in, I've worked in beer since 2008 on and off and really do Mm. like a passion for, for fermentation and for the art of beer. And fortunately Mm -hmm. in my, in my sobriety journey, beer has never been my quote unquote drug of choice. I never drank beer ever. That was never my thing. Um, and I, I know that that it might be activating for some listeners to hear this, but, but, but beer is not something that's triggering for me. I, it's very different when it comes to wine and liquor, like that is yeah, a different altogether. Same. So, um, but yeah, so I, I got hired on as a beer rep cause it just made sense. Like I, I had worked like washing kegs in the brewery, cleaning lines and out in Oregon and worked as a bartender. And it was just a very natural progression. Um, but the hospice part was like, that was like totally like also one of those things where it was like, I don't know how the hell that worked itself out like it did, but I was working as a CNA at the staffing agency and they were not supposed to send me to the hospice. <laughs> Cause I was new. opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was new and, and they were like, do you, how do you think you're going to feel about this? And I'm going, well, I don't know. Like, I'm not going to know unless I try. And I, I showed up and I remember calling home my second day, uh, crying to my mom and saying, mom, I, I feel like I know, Oh, I'm getting emotional as I feel like I know what I'm made to do. Like this is one place in my life where I don't feel like I'm too much. Um, yeah. So I would actually sing to patients. Oh, well, I wanted to ask you, go on, because this is the bit I'm interested in too. Keep going. Yeah. So I I would, 
I would sing to my patients and that was, I started to notice this common thread in all of my jobs. Right. So middle school theater teacher, um, I worked as a barista for quite some time, uh, bartender, beer rep, nursing assistant, and also rehab tech too. And, and I started to kind of recognize that the common thread in all of this was holding space for people. And it, it actually, it kind of became a joke and it has been a joke in the beer rep community that, you know, when, when I walk into places, everyone knows that when I ask them how they're doing, it's like, but really, how are you doing? So, (laughs) yeah, that's authentic. That's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, I, I never wanted people to feel like I was trying to sell them something. I just wanted them to feel heard. And, and yes, hate the hustle. Yeah. And it's, and it's, (laughs) it's, it's powerful and it changes the way that you engage with people when you legitimately are not treating them like a means to an end, like you treat them like an end in and of themselves. And that to me is how I I am learning and have learned how to live my life because I don't ever want to feel like I'm a means to an end. Right. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening during that time. And, um, so 2019 ended up being rough. It was a rough, rough year for me. I, um, got into a very bad relationship, not as bad as the very last one, but I, I got into a relationship with a person who, um, was very dishonest and also operating out of his own wounding. And, and I, I stayed because I was like, if I'm bright enough, I can fix him. And if I just do all these things that are completely not in alignment with who I am as a person, I can fix him and I'll just drink because he's drinking too. And my drinking got bad. And every time I would get drunk, I would relate it back to my divorce and my lack of self-worth and my best friends, the two of them in particular, um, were always the ones and are still the ones that would hear me in my drunken teariness saying like, why did he leave me? Why, why, how could somebody cheat on me? This must be what I'm worth. Like all, just all this stuff coming up, you know? Yeah. And I, they would tell me all the time, like, you, you're so good at seeing all the goodness in other people. Like why, how, how come you can't see that in yourself? You know? And, uh, I think that's probably the greatest lesson that most of us have to learn. Right. Is to give ourselves the love that we give to, to other people. So, um, I, my drinking increased, which also important to note, never once did it affect my job. I, I still showed up to work every single day, high functioning, never mm-hmm. got like more intoxicated in public than people around me were getting. Cause, and also where I live, the bar is pretty high. <laughs> Really yeah, yeah, I'm chipping. You could just blend in there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And I would also bounce bars. I would like go between bars so nobody could really see how bad it was getting. And because I waited until I was like well into my 30s to start, like late 20s, 30s to start drinking, I. I was pretty like put together. I could be blacked out and you couldn't even tell how bad I was until you could, you know? And, mm. um, yeah. 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 So I, um, I, I got into, I I was drinking at this guy drinking at him, which I think we, we can all probably relate to. He really upset me and I was drinking at him and I crashed a car on the way home from the bar. And Mm. I was so lucky. I did not hurt myself. I did not hurt anyone else. I somehow drove away from the scene, even though my car was technically totaled and, um, woke up the next morning and called home, told my dad what I had done. Not an easy conversation to have. And my dad said, there is a DUI on the shelf with your name on it. If you keep doing that. And I said, not me. And, um, after this happened, I, I spent a good portion of 2019 working on getting sober. And, um, in July, got back into a relationship with the same guy, started drinking. And, um, in October of 2019, got diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis. So I've just lost my identity as an athlete, which was huge for me. Um, 
lost my um identity like like I wrapped so much of my worth up in the way that I looked and I could not maintain the physique that I was used to having because I could not exercise. It got so bad at that point that I was um, laying, I, I would have days where I would lay on my back and I could not get up and walk. And I'm, meanwhile, I live alone. Um, and I would just lay on the floor and cry in an immense amount of pain for days and um, feeling a lot of resentment and self-pity. And uh, when I could get to the store, I would drink. And um just like talking to a bunch of random dudes and it wasn't good. And I, I, October 7th of 2019 ended up getting a DUI. And, um, the story of the DUI is actually quite comical. Um, I totally Kristen wigged the cops. Um, when they tried to give me a field sobriety test, I tripped and I finger gunned at them and they left, but then had to take me to jail. So, um, there's comedy in it, but it was also, um, one of the most awful and best things <laughs> to ever happen to me. Um, I don't know if we should compare notes on that one because mine was horrendous, but go on. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and I, like, I do not, 10 out of 10 would not recommend a DUI uh, to, no, anyone, people. No. to anyone. Um, and if, if you are the type of person like myself, who's prone to getting behind the wheel of a car, um, uh, yeah, really good idea to get in touch with that part of yourself and have a really honest conversation. Because what I also learned is that folks that are, have a tendency to do that once oftentimes have multiple DUIs, which that was sitting in the back of my head. But after that happened, I got sober and, um, I had like a few, a few moments, I would say like a little, a little bit of time in between October, 2019 and the pandemic starting of, of, like a little, a few pickups here and there, but it was never like crazy drinking. I was just pretty convinced that I was done with it. Um, and I also, right before the pandemic started, told myself that I was going to, uh, quit my job as a beer rep and go to graduate school to become a therapist because I, I had been doing all this personal work in my own therapy for years and years and years. So, you know, um, never, never really acknowledging though, that I, I had a real drinking problem. Cause I always told myself that I could stop. Um, and I, I, I ended up, um, training a new hire at work and I was going to be a musician and a bartender while I went to school to be a therapist. Um, I was applying to graduate school and then the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, as we all know that when this happened, the whole world shut down. So I lost again, my identity and I'm in lockdown by myself. I can call my friends and zoom with them. We all have no idea what's going on. And, um, I'm like, well, this isn't summer camp anymore. I, I, you know, after a few weeks, we realized that this was going to go on for a while. And I'm like, I'm not going to get to play music to anyone that I might never get to do that again. Uh, definitely not serving anyone beer anytime soon as a bartender. So I had to stay in this job as a beer rep, which quite frankly, at that point in time was really burning me out. Um, mm -hmm. I was ready to be done. And, um, we were all trying to figure things out. And I started talking to this guy who lived a mile away from me and I'm friendly with everyone in our community. It's a, it's a small community. Most folks know me, especially being a musician and a beer rep. I know most folks around town and, and I knew better, you know, <laughs> I started, I started telling my friends, like I'm hanging out with so-and-so cause he lives, he lives a mile down the road. Then they would just go, I don't think that's a good idea. Mm. Cause he had a bit of a reputation. And and here again, okay, so I, sitting this side of it, can see the pattern evolving. At that particular time, what, can you remember what you were thinking, knowing that you were getting this advice? But as we do, we have to learn, we proceed. Uh, one of my character defects is thinking I know better. And when somebody tells me no, or they tell me that I can't do something that I want to do when I've set my mind to it, I'm like, oh, really? I'm just going to be sneaky. And that's the, honestly, that's the addict voice in me. And, and my addict voice is also really good at negotiating. I'm really good at looking at um, just the positive things and 
paying attention to those. So he and I, um, started going for these walks together. And at first it was actually really nice. Like he was, he was sober or so I thought, and would say the most lovely things to me. We were sharing groceries. I was, I had no intention of dating him. I was just, we were just hanging out. And, um, about four weeks in, he started using the L word and I was really resistant to it. And all my red flags, like all of the warning bells inside of me started to go off. Like this is, this is too fast. It's too fast. And I, um, some things started to happen that were questionable. And I kept telling myself that there is no way in hell that a person could possibly be this bad, like, or could possibly treat another human this bad. It's like, I'm having to teach somebody empathy. Like, you know, like you don't talk to someone like that, Mm. but telling myself that it's because he, he lost his job. And that was always his excuse too. He's like, oh, this pandemic's really taken it out of me and, and, and da, 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 da. And I would just make excuses for him. And I would tell my friends and family what was going on sometimes. Cause I'd say, is this normal? And they're going, that's bad. Um, yeah, it sounds like, you know, you can have, I don't want to say maybe a defeatist attitude, but we can choose how we react to these things. And like you said, you're a positive person, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I would tell myself too, cause he was, he was, he struggled with his own issues yes, you know yes, I'm, I'm not yes, here yes. to trash talk him by any means no no I skated really. <laughs> like and I I clearly no, had my like my own wounding no you're right everybody's got their thing exactly and everybody like you said generational a lot of people have got a lot of trauma and we get to find us out like you said as it unfolds like you're yeah. talking about yeah but in, in this particular instance I I'm trying to remain sober and I am in a relationship with a person who clearly is drinking substantially and has a reputation for doing so has lost several yeah, jobs because he very does difficult. so very and difficult. gets really mean when he's drinking mm. and i kept i would i kept telling myself that if i could just be this bright beautiful light and if i could just show him love like the kind of love that i wish that I could have gotten when I was a kid, um, when my parents were fighting, because he would always talk about things that happened in his home life. I was like, I'm just going to love him so hard that, you know, he'll change (laughs) tail is all this time. Right. Um, and what ended up happening was this, this person was very skilled at, at paying attention to what I wanted more than anything in life and what, I was most insecure about, and he would take those things and use them as weapons. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah. And it, it was just, I had never encountered a, a person like this before in my, in the whole of my life. And I started to tell people the things he was saying to me and they would say, that's abuse. And I'd go, that just feels like such a big word. I can't, he's not hitting me so it can't possibly be that bad he is hitting you though you just don't see the bruises yeah and honestly i say this and and i i could i i stand by it i would have taken him clocking me in the face a million times over Mm. what he said to me um and as somebody who struggles with this concept of external validation i'm i'm looking to others to define my worth I, that was crushing to me. He, he would say things like, you know, he knew that I wanted kids. He knew that I wanted to be in a family. He knew that my marriage ending was catastrophic to me and that I was trying to build myself up. He knew that I, um, was, was trying to better myself and that this path to self-improvement was so important that I was going to school to be a therapist. And he would say, you know, you're, you're in your mid thirties, you're wilting, you're uh not as beautiful as you once were i want to have kids with you now i want to start a family with you now you're a fake and a fraud nobody knows how bad you are except me and you have no business practicing therapy so you should just stop doing all of those things right now and stay with me because you're awful but i love you um and do you see that for what it really is now oh 
God, yeah. Like, yeah, good, but, good. But, but at, at the, the time, time, yeah, devastating. No, no. And I, and I allowed that to continue and it got so bad. Um, and his behavior was scary. Like, um, his behavior would get really erratic and terrifying before I really understood how bad his drinking actually was. And my drinking started to increase too, because it was the only way that Mm -hmm. I could convince myself that, that it was okay to stay in that. And I would, I would sit on the corner of the couch towards the end and he would stand over me and it was, it was almost, it was maniacal. It was terrifying. And, and I, and he would, he would just be firing off insults and I'm sitting on the corner of the couch, a shell of a human being told that I am all of these terrible things. And I I would cry and I would say, you're hurting me. You're saying that you love me, but you're hurting me. And he would laugh oftentimes with a cigarette in his hand. And he'd be like, you're such a fucking snowflake. Like he'd call me a snowflake. And I would, I would, I would cry. He would tell me that he should have cheated on me with younger women, knowing that that was, it was just, it was bad. And I, um, I, I would tell my friends about it until I realized that nobody was supporting me and making the choice to stay in it. So then I started to hide it and I started to drink because I was hiding it. And, um, I found out towards the, during the last six months of that relationship, which at that point was very on and off. Like I, um, found out he was keeping a half gallon of vodka underneath the sink and, um, drinking out of it daily. And he was going through it like once every two days or so. It's a lot of vodka. Um, so I, um, ended up going like when we would get into these fights, I would then start going under, under the sink and, and I'm judging him for drinking this vodka, but then I would drink it because it was the quickest way for me to shut down the shame. And at this point, anger that I felt at, at myself and at this person for treating me the way they did. And then I started to communicate with him in the way that he was communicating with me, because that's, that's all you can do when you, you are involved in a relationship like this. And it just escalated and escalated and escalated until it got to the point where my, my best friend looked at me one day and he said, either he is going to kill you or you're going to kill him if you do not end this, like, this is where this goes. That's, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot to have to say that to a friend, isn't it? It must've been terrifying for. Oh, he cried. uh, Yeah. Yeah. For all of you. Yeah. To let things and and listen, we never want it to get to that stage. You know, we don't condone violence and, and unfortunately this is just your experience that you're sharing with the listeners right now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, I could go on and on about it, but the, the point is, is that it was, it was, it was beyond bad at this point. And I didn't understand the concept of a trauma bond, but I, that, that trauma bond was cemented about mm. um, six months in. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out, I'm like, why do I keep going back to this when I know better? I don't even really like him anymore, but I, I can't leave. I felt so trapped. And in June of last year, we had a, a major incident that occurred. And um, I do want to say, like, it is important to note that, like, I can't necessarily blame him for all of it because I, once I, I allowed myself to become a part of that cycle, I engaged too. And that's an embarrassing thing to Yeah, me. sure. No, no, every, I agree. Every relationship is two people, but we're just explaining people. Yeah. Your experience, yeah, yeah. Look, it, 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 it's frightful when it gets to that stage and you think, how did I get here? How mm-hmm. did it get this bad? I mm-hmm. believe I'm a good person. But then on reflection, again, you know, our senses, are, oh, we just react. So it's like gasoline to fire, mm-hmm. you know, and in mm-hmm. sobriety we can pause. There is no pause. There was no pause for me when I was drinking. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to learn how to pause now. I realize that's something I'd still need to work on. Mm-hmm. So go on back to you. We don't want to talk about me. Yeah, no, no. The, the pause is really yeah, important. And I was not good at pausing. No, I'm, I'm and, not good at <laughs> And I still like that's that's been a great lesson for me is learning how to pause. And I and not just pause, but listen and trust my intuition when it's telling me something. Cause I was just my intuition, like higher self Melissa is over here going like 
saying things to me and I'm on the other half going, um, no, no, like, thanks. Thank you for your input, higher self. You're wrong. Um, I'll just, you know, put that on the back and put a pin in it and come back to it later. Uh, but, but yeah, I just, we had this major incident that happened and it, it was bad. I, um, I was, I'm in graduate school at this point in time to become a therapist, mind you, my whole life is like, nobody, nobody knows how bad this has really gotten except for the people that are close to me. So I'm doing this therapy program. I'm succeeding as a beer rep. Honestly, I'm doing great. I'm my drinking in secret is escalating and I'm listening to my therapy professors tell me how important it is for me to do the personal work. And I'm feeling very conflicted about it and remembering my own therapist saying, you cannot take a client further than you have gone. You can't, it can't be done. And I'm going, I can't teach anyone to, um, or, or like tell somebody to leave an abusive relationship, go no contact, try sobriety. If I haven't done these things, right. I know it, but I'm not doing it. Moving, moving that information from your head to your heart is honestly the furthest 12 inches to go. So, um, I, yeah, I, um, we had this incident. I end up in this shelter having a discussion with my, um, the, the intake person and she does a homicide assessment and she, she goes through the whole thing with me. Meanwhile, my phone is blowing up with all these text messages from him that I'm, that I'm sharing with her. And she stops and she looks at me and she goes, I, somebody who scores a 13 on this is at high risk for homicide. And you just got a 23. So, and that like a homicide assessment as in like the risk of, of like, one of us dying in this relationship. And he's sending these very threatening and scary text messages, probably drunk. And I'm sharing it with her. And she's like, you're abused. Plain and simple. Here's a power and control wheel. I don't know how to explain this to you in any other way, but you have to leave this and you have to put a safety plan in place. So, um, and it's been since then that it was a really hard road. And that was about the time that I came onto the I am sober app. Um, that, that is what led me from point A to point B. And then hearing Molly's story, um, shortly after that incident, cause it was at the very mm. beginning of June last year and, um, going, I really need to get my shit together and hearing the stories of other women and going to domestic violence courses through this organization and hearing that most women don't make it out. Once you've formed a, a trauma bond, it is one of the hardest things to break. And I was determined no matter how many times that I fell down and allowed contact with this person to occur, to, to keep trying. And that was, and is to this day harder than, than anything I have ever done in my whole life. Like exiting that relationship and getting sober. This is the hardest thing I've ever done, but I was not going to give up. No, you certainly were not going to give up. So, wow, I'm so sorry you've been through all this. This is this is a lot. It really is. But anybody out there, you know, she's bravely telling you this. And if you're listening and you're finding yourself just shaking your head going, oh, my God, that's me, that's me, please, please take some action. There will be somebody out there that can help you. So go on, keep going, take us to, you're on the app and I know you're communicating and, and all I see is you're just trying, 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 back, back, very honest, probably one of the most honest accounts that I have honest, that I've seen, I was going to say honestly again, but that I have seen on IAS, you're very honest and you work this and you want it. Mm-hmm. And as I said, your tenacity is quite incredible. And it's, I've read some things and, I, and there's some things I don't want to bring up because I, you know, I don't want it to be all, all sad and sad for you. Are you experiencing, are you experiencing joys these days? Are you, where are you at now? Oh, uh, you know, I am not just saying this because I, I feel like I need to, to provide a happy ending to this. Um, I work AA. 
I work an AA mm-hmm. program. I work 12 step program, mm-hmm. which is something mm-hmm. that I was incredibly resistant to doing. Yeah. And that in conjunction with I am sober has completely changed my life. Um, I am happier at this point in time in my adult life than I have ever been. Good. I am Good. more grounded and sure of myself than I have ever been. And I feel more supported than I have ever felt. And my life is more simple and boring than it has ever been. And I love it. Oh, amen to that, sister. Amen to that. So is mine. And I love it too. <laughs> and simplicity. Sim- Look, honestly, I have, you know, I get out in the community and I do a lot of things um, in IAS. And I've gone into another community recently that's mainly women. And the torment that I see day in, day out, it breaks my heart. And you're a big empath too. So you're right though. You're going to get, I so see you doing that, getting so much more out of just giving. And it is the right thing for you to do because I know that when I give, I get back and I'm hopeless. I'm a big sook. I was as a kid. I am as an adult. And I just think, wow. It's just, are you still working at the brewery by chance? You are? I am. Yay. Oh, you, you've been there now. Wow, that's amazing. Eight years. And then, good on you. Good on you. And I don't want to talk about your story because that's it. Yeah, and I'm seeing a lot of women out there and they are hurting. And loneliness is the one thing that I felt. And that's what the, the isolation, the loneliness, being away from, and just not having inter- any interaction. And if, you have a past where your career is involved with people, as is yours, as was mine. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it's all gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when it really, that's when I got worse. But I started drinking a lot younger than you, and I'm a lot older than you. I mean, I started at 17 and finished at 59 mm-hmm. which or 58, you know. So, yeah, it's interesting stuff, isn't it? But <clears throat> to be able to look back, and see how far you've come and what you've achieved. I think it's just brilliant. Are you, are you ever going to journal it and let it be published? Because someone said yesterday, why don't you just write a book for yourself? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, I've considered doing that because I feel like my, you know, th- there's been a lot that's occurred in my life and I, I, it's, it's still so unfinished, you know, and I'm right, ex- right. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And as you said, it's not about the happy ending. It's mm-hmm. about being joyous in the present and being just, I heard this saying, you sound loving it. As I said, it's pause, rest, and be. And I can never pause, rest, and be in my life. It mm-hmm. was, you know, go, 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 impulse, impulse, do, 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 move, move, move. Looking for, as you said, external invalidation, out, uh, sorry, validation out there everywhere. Yep. When really, it's you've got to find it within yourself in your own time in your own way Mm -hmm. yeah and I and it's like learning how to really enjoy your own company and yes thank you that my my very first therapist that I ever had gosh she had so much great wisdom and she would she would say things that I would hear but I wasn't actually living it and now I get it she she drew this this graph one time and it was, it was, it was a squiggle line with ups and downs. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm watching you and you are your, your perception of yourself and your entire demeanor is dependent upon these peaks and valleys. Right. And we're just working on getting you to the point where you can just kind of be in the middle, no matter what. And I, I grew up in the church, but found myself firmly resonating with Buddhist practice, which is the thing right now that I do believe to keep me sober. And it's this concept of equanimity where it's like, I don't get too high. Don't get too low. You just kind of take life as it comes. It is what it is. And, and very compassionately and gently observe your reactions to it. I laugh at my now therapist because she's always telling me to put my hand on my heart and talk to my inner six-year-old. And I'm like, Oh God, here we're we're doing this. Okay. And, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's usually but the point where I go into tears. Yeah, no. And, and I, yeah, I was very resistant. I'm like, this is woo woo. Like I'm so resistant to this, but when I started doing it, I was like, Oh, 
Okay, so now the real place, the real <laughs> feelings, the real moments. Oh, this is what it was kind of all about too for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm like, I do this now as a practice every night before bed because that's usually in my sobriety when when times have been the hardest when I when I realize okay, like you live alone with your adorable dog, and she's great. But now I get to, I don't have anyone to call and I can just sit here with all these really fun things that are coming up. And I, I put my hand on my heart and I just ask myself, like, what is Melissa feeling right now? And I can observe those things that are coming up and go, oh, look how human you're being right now. Look at, look at that. You're, you're future tripping look at you. Okay. That's cute. And when you start looking at it with this air of curiosity and compassion, instead of this judgment, it, it, there's so much healing on the other side of that. I used to, I had so much shame, so much shame over parts of myself that I felt like were, were, um, the reasons why I wasn't connecting with potential partners or friendships or whatever, why I'm not fitting in. I, I would say, Oh, it's because you're too much. And, and I realized it was just, I hadn't authentically accepted myself. And I also, honestly, I hadn't found my people yet. And then I started going to be a therapist and I'm like, these are my people. (laughs) Right. And you know what? You're not the first person that I've heard say, Oh, I, people have told me I'm too much. And we got not even just me, people have said that to me too, but um yeah it's don't don't you worry you just be too much you just be authentically too much that's what i am going to say to you um so you these days obviously good you're still reading without as i said get a nice glass and put something lovely you you know something that's never had alcohol in it but get a pretty glass and put something nice and do your reading um and i'm just going through all these notes here i'm just going to say what else would you like to add to it because i mean You're driving this bus at the moment. Yeah, I, if I can impart really any, anything to anyone who's listening to this, that that's been on a similar journey, or that is just really struggling with, with self-acceptance. Um, my, my journey to this has, has really, it's come through honesty and surrender. And that's, something that that you brought up is is saying that you see a tremendous amount of honesty. And I started to realize that I could not accept myself and I could not get sober if I wasn't being radically honest. And it was, and it wasn't, you're not just being radically honest with just anybody. You're being radically honest with people that are safe to hear that. And Honestly, I, I, I could come into this community in particular and be my most authentic self. And in doing that and in, and being brave enough to be vulnerable with these people and to just go, I am going to share some of my darkest parts with these folks. And I don't know how that's going to go. And to be received and supported and accepted, no matter how many times I reset, um, allowed me to then start uh, creating a connection with myself and a connection with others. And that connection, then it it just, it continues to lead me into, um, I guess, a, a, a bright and vibrant life that I didn't even know that I was capable of having, but I could not do that without first, like being honest, like brutally honest with myself. And that it came with a question from my sponsor, um, who actually, she was a person I started to talk to about my abusive relationship. Cause she had been in one, we were put in touch for that reason, not because I wanted her to be my sponsor, but she talked about working 12 step. And she asked me one day, she said, you're telling me all these things that you're doing and you, you keep showing up to work. Like you're resetting and you're working with this IAS community. But I have to ask you, are you a problem drinker or are you an alcoholic? And I couldn't answer that question until I could. And Mm. I think it was, um, Doug saddle tramp or chef. I can't remember which one of the two of them it was posted when I taught, I said, I moderation is not available to me. I'm starting to realize this moderation is not available to me. I keep gathering these data points, um, and coming to the same conclusion every single time this ends the same way. And they said, 
moderation is the only question. And when you can answer that honestly for yourself there, it's just smooth sailing. There's freedom on the other side because it's not negotiable anymore. Right. And that's exactly, that's a beautiful point that you make right there. And look, the whole podcast has been just so eloquent and beautifully articulated. So I thank you for that. And it's so true, isn't it? When you actually accept the fact that I can't just have one or two. I want, no, I want one or two bottles. And then I'll think about what I'm going to do after that. Maybe depends what the time is or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're just forward tripping before you've even enjoyed one glass. It's Mm. where's the next one coming from? And my mother once said that to me too. She said, darling, do you know what the definition of of an alcoholic is? I said, what, mum? She said, somebody who starts, darling, and they just can't stop and they're just looking for the next one. Yeah. And now I know because my mother stopped drinking at 40 and I think that was her realisation because my stepdad never drank. Um, My biological father had a drinking problem and and was on dialysis and so forth. So, you know, but it's interesting. I didn't even, it didn't click to me at the time. It's clicked to me now that my mom had more problems than I thought that she did. But she was, again, when you're high-functioning and if you do have childhood trauma, I know one thing. Um, from my point of view, wherever I was was wherever I felt safe and it didn't matter how unsafe the environment was. Mm-hmm. I was just being for a minute, you know, I could just stop when it was, it was a quiet moment and the mm-hmm. quiet moment may have been stuffed under the bed many a time with my brother and mm-hmm. things like that, but those moments were where I felt safe. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make sense, does it, that you should feel safe? <laughs> what are you doing under a bed in the first place? Well, strangers were coming to the house and I didn't want to answer the front door and I was home alone you know I was eight he was two those sort of things but I think that's my point that everybody needs a safe space mm-hmm. everybody needs a safe friend and somebody that they can um, turn to and I also have now I attend um, AA meetings online in Australia because you know I'm from Australia and I love the serenity prayer and once I started mm-hmm. living by that my life changed yep simple yep. Same. I eliminated all the stress, all the worry, and honestly, sober seedling, it's been that was the game changer out of all of it. Mm-hmm. The serenity prayer, it made so much sense. And I love those little, you know, nuggets that just get you through life. And it will. Yeah. And the and the thing is, like, I say that serenity prayer now every single day. Every single day when I wake up. Me too. It's on my mirror in my bedroom. Yep. It's it's still it, there. It's so simple what can I change? What can't I change? Give me the strength to accept that. And cause that's life is going to happen on life's terms and I can make the choice to drink about it. And if I make the choice to drink about it, I know what happens on the other side of that. I've gathered enough data points to prove that it just keeps going down, but I don't know what comes on the other side. If I choose to not drink, all I have to do in this moment is not take a drink. Do not drink in this moment. Do not pick up. Do not numb out. And I can can comfortably say that in, gosh, like I've I've had like a 60-day stretch. I had a little relapse. Um, and I'm on 52 days right now. And this round, like okay. the way that my life has changed in that time in my heart is is. Yeah. It's unbelievable. You can't selectively numb an emotion. Brene Brown talks about that. And I forgot what joy felt like or what having a God moment felt like. And to me, like I find God when I'm singing, I find God when I am sitting outside and listening to the birds. Do I know what my higher power is? Hell no. I don't know what I'm talking to. It's not church God. It's not, you know, the, the, the God of a Christian church, but whatever it is, it's much bigger than me. And every single moment, as long as I keep surrendering to it and I don't drink, I get these little like nuggets on the other side of it. And even in the suffering, right? Like I'm even learning that the suffering that I experience makes me tender and more compassionate. It's wild. I can it is on. a wild journey. I know it is a wild journey, but as I said, you know, I love that um, the big wave, you know, and the sun's behind the wave and you, you just got to go through it. And then once you go through it and deal with it in time, it will pass. And now the emotions, and I did those podcasts about grief. And now my emotions about my parents and other losses mm-hmm. are happy memories. Mm-hmm. Are happy memories now because I had to go through it. And it doesn't mean that I don't cry. I still do. But I'd also talk to them. And like mm-hmm. you said, 
it's a lot bigger. I feel like a tiny little ant. It was a bit like when I went to New York for the first time. I felt like a little ant in this huge buzzing city. Mm-hmm. Well, I sort of feel like that in the world too. But we make a difference. And if we can, that little ant can make a difference. And I'm, I'm particularly happy. So, yeah, look, I want to thank you. It's been, wow, it's been terrific. And um, as I said, if you've got any more tips to tell the listeners, please do it now. Um, I want to thank you. It's been a pleasure. And, yeah, have you got anything else you'd like to say before we just uh, pull into the station and say bye-bye? Yeah, just don't give up. I, I That's know. what I was going to say. You chose, you pinched my words, but, yeah, it's so true. Never, ever give up. I, I, I got stuck for so long mm. in that whole, like, I, I just, I don't understand why I keep doing this. I don't understand why I keep doing this. But if you keep doing it, it will stick. And if you keep being honest and showing up, even when you're ashamed of it, like I've lied on the app before about being sober in the early stages. I did that. Yeah. Like, and it's it for anyone listening that's doing it or has done it. So what? That's your addict brain. The only way you're going to get to the other side of that is by getting up, dusting yourself off because you know more now than you did five minutes ago. And if you do relapse, it's a data point. Do not get stuck in the grief as much as you can help it because that self-deprecation didn't serve me. What served me was getting up, dusting off and talking, talking to people about it, being Mm. honest. Mm. And knowing your triggers. Yeah. True, you know, the stress, I know for me, it's people say it's the little things and it is the little things. You know, I can be just fine. If I have a blow up with somebody or somebody stresses me out or something happens or somebody's a trigger, do you know what I mean? I've got to find myself catching myself in that moment and just, okay, mm-hmm. recognize it. Like Annie Gray says, stop, clarify, turn it around, yep. you know, and, and you've got to have some tools, people, and there are plenty here. So, again, thank you. Um, listeners, please check out, as I said, the website. There's plenty there for you. There's lots of brave stories like Sober Seedling has shared today. There's book recommendations. There are actual tools about things that happen to your body. You'd be surprised what happens to our body and brains. And uh, certainly, you know, I just want everyone to just do the best they can. And as Sober Seedling said, just keep trying, just keep, keep trying, and I will see you next time. And thanks for listening.